0: Hello and welcome to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter Lavelle. It has been reported the CIA's William Burns offered Russia 20% of Ukrainian territory in exchange for ending the conflict. The Kremlin, the White House, and the CIA all have rejected this reporting, all of which makes us think the opposite. Some in the Biden administration want to wrap up this needless foreign adventure. discuss these issues and more. I'm joined by my guests, George Samueli in Budapest. He's a podcaster at The Gaggle, which can be found on YouTube and Locals. And here in Moscow, we have Dmitri Babich. He is a political analyst and editor at Inosmi Internet Media Project. All right, gentlemen, crosstalk rules. In effect, that means you can jump anytime you want, and I always appreciate it. All right, let's start out in Budapest. George, you, this reporting, I know you're aware of it here. There's been a lot of commentary on it, uh, uh, all sides involved with the exception of Ukraine which we'll talk about have denied this which gives some credence to me that some someone in the Biden administration is um uh, um, um applying some kind of trial balloon not the chinese weather balloon but a trial balloon your thoughts does it does it mean anything
1: well unfortunately i don't think it does um i tend to think that uh, the biden administration is just set on this uh path and, uh, and there's nothing that's really stopping it because the American foreign policy establishment is uh, set on this path. So if we look at the, uh, the latest issue of Foreign Affairs magazine published by the Council of Foreign Relations, the, the big in-house mag of the uh, foreign policy establishment, there's an article by Michael McFall, the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia, calling for total victory over Russia um there's an article by gary kasparov also says a victory to the death unconditional surrender from putin um um an article by alexander vindman saying the same thing so they all banging the same drum. then we had boris johnson in washington this week again you know let's say we we need total victory what about the prospect of nuclear war putin's bluffing and then you know and that's and they're all, they're all just repeating it so unfortunately for the united states this war, as, as seen at the moment, is a godsend. Basically, Europe has been eliminated as any kind of a force in the world. NATO is consolidated under American leadership. The military-industrial complex is humming very nicely because essentially, the European defense industry will now just vanish. It will be replaced by American equipment. And you know, Russia—they—they continually sort of debilitating Russia. So, I wish that there were some serious uh, uh, negotiations towards peace. Unfortunately, I don't see it.
0: Dima, your thoughts here, because I, in, in everything that George said can be perfectly valid, but at the same time, um, they, they, there could be some kind of uh, sniffing around and seeing what the attitudes are, You know, how far the Russians are going to go, are they even open to any kind of negotiations? And again, I want to stress, you know, Ukraine as a, a player in all this was not mentioned. OK, so nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine doesn't seem to be in play. But everything that George said could be possibly very valid, which I tend to agree with him. I just wonder why the story was floated. It came from Swiss media. Go
2: ahead, Dima. Yeah, it came from a Swiss newspaper in the midst of a debate in Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland as a neutral country, can it supply munitions and even arms to Ukraine? You know, isn't it against the neutral status? And most of the lawyers, most of the specialists in uh, in uh, uh, Switzerland said that no, if we're a neutral country and we supply weapons to Ukraine, then according to the old principle of neutrality, we should also supply weapons to Russia. <laughs> uh, so uh, basically, the question is, uh, even if such an offer had been made, would Russia accept I mean, just the last three weeks or two weeks, we saw an avalanche of confessions. Merkel said that Minsk agreements were just to give Ukraine some time, you know. Hollande said basically the same. Now, Boris Johnson also said it was, a, I call it, a diplomatic imitation. So, I mean, uh, if, uh, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on me. uh, Sorry, fool, fool me once, shame on you. Me twice, shame on me. You know, is Russia going to accept uh, some kind of a compromise that comes from someone like uh, William Burns or, uh, you know, the other people who basically were pretty much discredited? You know, I mean, they lied so often. So, uh, this is the big question. Uh, However, uh, I think everyone understands and everyone expects uh, that uh, this terrible tragedy would end with some kind of agreement. Uh, The problem is that. The West is not ready for such a degree. I mean, look, this huge mobilization of tanks all over Europe, you know. Uh, they want to get Greece involved there, which traditionally has been a friend of Russia. They want to uh, to get in, uh, all the countries involved. And they all understand it's dangerous, you know. Uh, it, I, I basically, we see the same kind of pattern. Uh, uh, you know, the, the United States and Europe make some kind of a very provocative hostile move, such as Maidan in 2013, 2014, for example, Russia first tries not to react, you know. Uh, when uh, European politicians were openly, openly cheerleading the crowds on Maidan, uh, it was the case, I mean, look at their speeches, look at their images. Russia did not send anyone there except a liberal, a former member of Yabloko Party, Vladimir Lukin, who came in the last two days, you know, of, of the confrontation. So he basically did not have any influence. Uh, so Russia waited, waited, and then, uh, you know, the Crimean story stuff. So uh, it is the same pattern. The West provokes, you know, Russia tries not to notice. Then Russia reacts, uh, and, and the, then the full confrontation is moved to another stage, to another level, and the West is, is starting to yell, this was an unprovoked, uh, you know, uh, escalation from Russia. You have been provoking Russia before Crimea for many years, and especially during the last five months of Maidan. Now what happened, uh, you know, before uh, uh, Putin's decision on uh, February 22nd, uh, uh, sorry, February 24th, 2022, remember there were five months of negotiations and there were lots of uh, provocations from Ukraine. So it's always the same pattern. Yeah, George,
0: it's interesting. The 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 this reporting from Swiss media, twenty percent, which is kind of curious because they're it, it's uh, it's almost as if the West is believing its own propaganda. Because if you think about what Burns apparently allegedly was offering, is twenty percent the size of the Donbas? Crimea wasn't mentioned at all, as far as I'm uh, I understand, but. Ukraine, uh, Kiev did not have control over that 20 percent uh, on the day before the conflict started. So, I mean, do people like Burns think that the Russians are willing to accept chump change after all this? I find it really baffling. It, it's it, You can explain it if they actually believe their own propaganda, low morale, no ammunition, running out of missiles, you know, all this stuff which has never been proven. There's no empirical evidence to back it up. Your thoughts?
1: No, I, I I think so, um, and but but I am also skeptical. Uh, I think that if there were a serious offer made to Russia, I don't think the Americans would use William Burns um, mm. to do it. I mean, I think that you know why would the director of the CIA? I mean, I know he had been an ambassador before, but still, director of the CIA is an odd sort of person to um, to send a, a message. Um, I mean, if one thinks about how this might conclude i mean it it could actually be concluded you know they keep saying oh at the end of the process there'll be some negotiation but it may be that there'll be no negotiation at the end of the process that would just simply be you know thus far no further and essentially there'll be as you know some sort of a, an armistice um russia takes whatever it takes uh and there is a a remnant of Ukraine that remains but it'll be totally under American tutelage it probably will be inducted into NATO um and then you have essentially a frozen conflict which can last I mean if you think about let's say Korea I mean, you know you had a frozen conflict it's lasted um, 70 years I mean of course sometimes they don't last but it, it may be because it's hard to see at the moment how there can be any kind of negotiations I mean Dima's pointed out very well that how, you know, the the, you know, the Russians have been, you know, fooled and you know, betrayed time and time again, going all the way back to um, uh, Gorbachev and James Baker's not one inch to the east. I mean, this is going on. So why would the Russians sit down and believe any promises at all made by the United States?
0: In, pat- in particularly, Dima, I mean, it's something that George and I on the gaggle have talked about almost on a daily basis, is that, um, even the very idea of an armistice or ceasefire, well, that will just you know it just take a time out to uh, load up Ukraine with more and more weapons with NATO being involved in it. That doesn't resolve it. See the problem with the West in the way that they tr- they try to understand or misunderstand Russia's position is that. It wants security guarantees in the European landmass, okay? That's never addressed by the West, okay? And and that's what Russia said, but this is the origins of it. You can talk about unprovoked all you want, who cares? But we have demands, and you don't even deign to recognize that we have these demands.
2: Dima? Uh, well, you're absolutely right. Uh, and also, uh, remember, the West, not, not even Ukraine, the West, had all the opportunities to make it a frozen conflict for eight years. I mean, Good point. Th- there was an example, uh, Moldova. you know, In Moldova, there was a terrible conflict in 1992. It ended in August, thanks to the Russian troops, who basically separated uh, Transnistrian troops and the Moldovan troops. And then, uh, for for how many? For 30 years... Uh, there was not a single person killed, you know. There is a certain tense sometimes, you know, there are armed people on the two sides of the Nista River, uh, but it's a, it's really a frozen conflict. Uh, the problem with Donetsk that it has never been a frozen conflict since uh, 2014. It was always an open wound. I mean, the, the Western media did not report it, uh, at least in detail, but uh, Donetsk had been bombed almost every week sometimes more often since uh, and and, and blockading
0: and blockaded no medicines no pensions paid nothing Absolutely. i mean it's not, this
2: is never reported in western media yeah they don't remind people that the minsk agreements you know they kept Ra- accusing russia of not fulfilling the minsk agreements i mean read the minsk agreements it's just three and a half pages uh, the, the, uh, the clause that they kept uh, pestering Russia with, you know, the establishment of Ukrainian control on the borders, this is the last, the last point, you know, uh, uh, on these three and a half pages. And, and uh, there, were, there were points about amnesty for people who participated in the, in the conflict in 2014, not fulfilled by Ukraine. There was a clause about special status for the territories where people speak Russian language, no uh, reaction from Ukraine. Uh, uh, you know, uh, blockade had to be lifted. Nothing
0: has been done. Let me, let, me, let me go to George before we go to the break here. Uh, George, you and I have scoffed at, you know, the, the very thought of, let's return to the mince process. That's essentially what this report is saying. Go ahead. Yeah,
1: that's that's exactly right. It's like the Western powers are saying, "Yeah, yeah, th- this Minsk agreement that we never took seriously, never did anything to implement." Yeah, that would be that would be a good framework for a, for an agreement. <laughs> so the Russians are going to take as, as an agreement something that you had not the slightest uh, intention of implementing last time.
0: Yeah, and, and and obviously the level of trust is at. Zero. All right, gentlemen, I'm going to jump in here. We're going to go to a short, uh, a short break. And after that short break, we'll continue our discussion with some real news. Stay with RT. Welcome back to Crosstalk, where all things are considered. I'm Peter LaBelle. This is the home edition to remind you we're discussing some real news. Right, let's go back to Dima here in Moscow. Dima, the, again, one of the subjects in, that is not really touched upon because they're all kind of focused on Russia is losing, Ukraine is winning, Zelensky's a, a new Churchill and all of this, which is this a lot of nonsense. It's a lot of white air because it doesn't really tell us anything about what's most important. And what is most important is when this military conflict comes to an end, which it will come to an end. Um, I personally think Russia will unilaterally determine that, but that's something down the road. Um, But what about the the post-conflict environment here? Because we have, we were told that Europe and NATO are very much united, but they're very much not, okay? We have the French and the Germans talking about security guarantees, the Eastern Europeans saying Russia is a war criminal, there's no need to talk to them. I mean, because and, and, and all the while Ukraine is really kind of low in the totem pole of importance here, okay? It's really about the relationship that Russia will have in European security structures if at all, and if it does not, That will make sure, that will determine that Europe is a very unstable place for a long time, because you'll definitely have elements in Ukraine, whatever size or shape and form it is, will be looking for revenge and an undoing of the settlement that Russia, in my opinion, will unilaterally impose. This is one of the things that needs to be talked about, Dima. Well,
2: obviously, Russia just cannot remain in the European jurisdiction, if you want, Mm -hmm. in general. Uh, I mean, uh, last week we had two awful, awful articles. You know, one was uh, in Euroactive by, by Anna Fatiga, you know, the former foreign minister of Poland, who is now a member of the European Parliament, where she basically wrote that uh, Tsarist Russia, communist Russia, Putin's Russia, they are all the same. This is the same country which is uh, banned on expansionism, which needs needs to be... Basically destroyed, not uh, physically, but uh, as an entity. She writes, "There should be no such thing as Russian oil. There should be Tatar oil, Bashkir oil, oil of the people of the North Caucasus." So, I mean, how can Russia remain in the in the framework of uh, uh, you know European jurisdiction with this kind of entity? You know. Uh, and the problem is it, that it, uh, it's, un- it's, un- what are those what are those damn Russians doing with our oil? That's what it sounds <laughs> like to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and this is not this is not uh, uh, you know an exception. This is the mainstream, unfortunately, at least in the northeast of Europe. And uh, and now we're told that the uh, the centerpiece, you know, the center of European Union is moving to the northeast. Now it's Poland, the Baltics, you know, East Euro- Eastern Europe who's playing a well, but, much bigger I, role
0: well, that's that, that's ideologically okay in in, in, no, in no other sense okay or it shows the relative weakness of uh the most western part of the continent which is really kind of pathetic but probably expected G- george you know uh you know, russia an expansionist russia i mean in 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 the last 30 years it's only nato that has been expanding not russia well, don't you know, NATO is a defensive
1: alliance. I mean, oh, everything I've heard, I've heard they that do before. is defensive. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, that, that, that's right. The, the problem with Europe and, and with the United States is that it has very weak leadership. Uh, at, at the moment, what you would need, somebody in the West who could just take the situation by the scruff of the neck, so to speak, and just bring it to an end. You know, you need somebody who's just going to say, this policy is nuts. We have to uh, bring this to an end. It, it makes no sense. It's not advancing our interests. it's just leading to disaster. Um, but there's no one around. you know we have um, you know Sergeant Schultz, uh, the German Chancellor who's constantly just saying, no, no, I I don't want to do that. And then you know 10 minutes later he changes his <laughs> mind. So now no, we're not we're not sending any fighter jets. We are'm drawing the line here. no fighter jets. So that means, you know, yeah, fighter jets are going to be going all the way. Or Macron says, well, we we mustn't impose a peace on, on Russia that's humiliating. But in the meantime, I'm I'm going to go on sending you know fighter jets and whatever. Well,
0: so and, and apparently and apparently, George, one of the reasons why Macron t- uh, uh, still is in contact with Putin because he's doing a personal favor for Zelensky right. because Zelensky yeah. burnt his bridges. We we will not talk to this man. But then he kind of you know meekly calls um, uh, Macron, say, can you give him a call for me, please? I mean, this is how the, the lack of leadership. This is the kind of leadership we have in Europe. Okay, yes. we we have a panhandler in Kiev calling the shots, telling the president of France to call the Russian president. It's extraordinary. Right, but that's the thing. That, that
1: because you've got these very weak leaders, there is this great danger that you know, we could drift to a, a real, actual war uh, between NATO, in other words, the United States, and Russia. If you had a strong leader, a strong leader would have just simply you know, brought this to an end. But because of this lack of leadership, it's just there's a, this gradual drift to the point where I, I think that you know, it's it's very hard to see how it can be avoided because there's nobody in the West, uh, you know, and Trump, you know, at best, who, you know, won't be in power for another couple of years. But that's at best. Uh, there's, there's nobody who's just saying this has to stop. You know, we have to just work out some sort of a uh, an agreement and, you know, which is in our interest.
0: There's no one Wait, like sorry, that. Something akin to Eisenhower telling the British and the French to knock it off and sue us. That, Just knock it off. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That, it, it. yeah. Yeah, Dima. You know, you know. Ever since the conflict started back in February of last year, so it's almost a year now. I've been, I've done almost every single program on the topic, and it's been talking about Russia. But can you tell our audience? What is the thought? I mean, I don't know if average Russians actually articulate it. Most people don't think about politics. We're kind of fanatics. We think about it all the time. But, you know, Russia's 300 year um, dance, if you will, with the West is coming to an end. And this time it's quite definitive, I think. okay, because at the end of the Second World War, the famous phrase, the Iron Curtain is going up all across Europe but it's the it's the west that's created the iron curtain now how does that, how does that do you think impact how Russians think about the future of their country dima
2: well we we call for the best because uh, this is in human nature and uh, in fact the economic situation has not uh, deteriorated uh, mm-hmm. uh almost uh, almost everything's intact so uh, people are not too pessimistic they think that this is just a temporary problem, you know, the, 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 there is just another crazy ideology that uh, engulfed the West. And here I agree with George. Uh, even Trump, if he comes to power, will he be able to change the tide? I mean, we saw how he was incapacitated. He was the, formerly the president of the United States, but he could not pull the American troops out of Syria, you know, because the defense establishment was against it. He could not change the immigration rules because they found some court, you know, district court, which, which incapacitated him. So, unfortunately, something more serious has to change than just the guy who sits in the White House or who sits in the Elysee Palace. Uh, basically, if we look, uh, let's be precise about Macron, you know, he didn't uh, send uh, planes. He just said that if the United States sends planes and if, uh, you know, we have peace uh, talks with Russia, which are good for Ukraine, uh, and which would include some guarantees for Russia's security, he was immediately attacked for including guarantees for Russia's security. This was a, an anathema, you know, to most of the European establishment. Yes, yeah, but, yeah, but, European but, establishment but, but you know, has to change. It has that, to you know,
0: change,
2: because... Uh, but but, uh, but, but we're, get, we're in a, in a, very,
0: uh, a very sad uh, place. George, it, this is almost kind of like thinking about the aftermath of 1945, two outside powers, Russia and the United States determining the fate of Europe. But the Europeans allowed it this time, okay? It wasn't because they didn't have the capacity. It's, you know, they they have, the EU has a larger population, a larger GDP than the United States, but it is acting in such a a, a flaccid manner, okay? I mean, in in 1945, Europe was vanquished, it was destroyed. But this is just a lack of leadership and foresight and and a god-awful ideology, George.
1: Yes, uh, that, that's right. I mean, the the Europeans had been talking since uh, the nineteen eighties about how they were going to develop a European security and defense identity. There would be, uh, and then you know, in the nineties, they started started talking about a European uh, foreign policy. And then at, when there was a Yugoslav crisis, that was the hour of Europe. that the European leaders proclaimed, but it never happened. <laughs> and time went on, and Europe has become even more subordinate to the United States than it uh, than ever was during the Cold War. Even during the Cold War, you had uh, real European leaders who stood up to Washington, like De Gaulle or Willy Brandt and Helmut Schmidt. There's nothing now. I mean, it's total subordination when there doesn't seem to be any real need for it. I mean, there's no security threat that there might've been during the Cold War. It's, uh, they, they find this a very convenient uh, arrangement. And so now here, here they know all, all European, People know, all well, European politicians know, that this is an absolute disaster for Europe. It will only harm Europe the, the longer this goes on. But they have, they are incapable of taking any sort of a lead and standing up and, and saying enough to the, you know, to the United States that this is something that you provoke. There was never any need for this. Uh, we have so many opportunities down the road to have brought this to a conclusion. But there's no one. And there doesn't seem to be anybody at all who's, who's stepping forward.
0: Well, it's it's very interesting, Dima, because they're members of NATO, particularly on what they call the Eastern flank. Um, uh, they're more distrustful of Berlin and Paris than they are of Washington. I mean, mm-hmm. this you know, I this is a, a a catastrophe that should have been avoided, could have easily been avoided. We've been saying this on this program for a year now. But I have to agree with George many times now is that the Americans are pretty much getting everything they want. I mean, this
2: is a boon for them. Sure. Well, mm. I think it's a boon for the ideology that rules the United States. It's not a boon for Americans. I mean, uh, Americans, oh, just like Europeans, Good point. are losing, you know, losing a lot of opportunities because of what happened. Uh, but, you know, uh, talking about values, I mean, uh, what kind of European values do we have if uh, Chancellor Schultz, when he was asked, are you going to send tanks? He said, if the United States send tanks, then I will also send tanks. It's like, uh, Chancellor, Sch- uh, Chancellor uh, you know, uh, Schultz, uh would you kill people? Well, personally, me, I, I wouldn't, you know. But if the United States kills people, I would also kill people. So this is the kind of European balance. you know. They look up to the United States. If the United States is doing something, they're going to do the same, you know. Uh, t- now today it's with Russia. Tomorrow it will be with China. The day after tomorrow. I don't know what will happen. You know, they may even imitate capital punishment or whatever. Of course, it will be a capital punishment only for the people who are politically incorrect. You know, it will be for some kind of uh, you know uh, racists or uh, misogynists. But uh, the problem oh, is don't that forget the
0: environment.
2: You're a carbon. Exactly. Carbon. All, okay. all, people here
0: all right, the people right. who Gentlemen, with fascinating discussion as usual. I want to thank my guests uh, in Budapest and here in Moscow. I want to thank our viewers for watching us here at RTC. And next time. Remember,
2: cross-talk rules.